This episode is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, experienced wealth managers who go above and beyond to guide and support you. CanDo is more than just an attitude. It's navigating today for a brighter tomorrow. Visit CanDoWealth.com. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week, we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. And I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's Executive Editor. On this week's episode, we'll be talking about Boris Johnson's revenge, how Saudi Arabia bought the world, and the invention of the Essex Man. First up, in her cover piece this week, The Spectator's political editor, Katie Balls, writes about how Boris is now spearheading an insurgency against the Prime Minister. Katie joins us now alongside the historian and author, Sir Anthony Selden. Katie, we're recording this on the day that the Privileges Committee has released their report. Do you think that Boris is going to seriously up the ante when it comes to seeking revenge against Rishi? I think we're in a strange situation whereby Boris Johnson is not trying to mount an immediate return. He's effectively, in a way, conceding defeat by quitting Parliament. Yet the manner in which he's going, the fact that he has two very supportive MPs who decided to jump ship at the same time, linked to the peerages row, uh, means that the risk is not so much a Boris Johnson comeback this side of the election, so much as the contagion of Tory walls spreading and a return to what dominated a lot of last year, when ultimately Rishi Sunak managed to bring an end to it when he first took over. The question is now, do things such as the poison pill left by Boris Johnson of free by-elections, should Nadine Doris at one point officially resign, mean that... Rishi Sunak's time becomes much harder and his premiership gets uh, swamped by clashing factions. Well, Anthony, what do you, what do you make of that? It's, if, if Katie suggests in her piece and just now that essentially Boris wants to undermine Sunak for the sake of it, how successful a strategy do you think that might be? Not as successful as Boris Johnson and his uh, tiny uh, band of uh, merry men and women would like uh, it to be because the truth is that he has little standing in the party, as I think we'll see in Monday's debate. Most people, uh, and certainly I would say everybody of quality and independent judgment, recognises that he's a spent force. Uh, He's a spent force uh, governmentally, politically. He he doesn't uh, represent Tory values. Uh, He didn't as prime minister, which was a major reason why he fell. And his one saving grace, his sublime gifts of appealing uh, to parts of the country that uh, conservative leaders don't normally reach, uh, that's a spent force too, because his personal polling is so poor. And uh, the way he's overreached himself on this, uh, with resorting to hyperbole, which um, if submitted in a politics essay uh, at the school, which I'm currently head, uh, would probably get uh, one out of 10, if, if, if at least for effort, and use of language, but uh, zero for any grasp of reality. I mean, the man is out of touch. So I don't think, I, I, I mean, the question is, is he deluding himself? Or does he really think uh, that he has a chance? Because I don't think he has any chance uh, of uh, making a serious impact and gaining a snowball momentum 
uh, this side of the general election. He may, when people's memories uh, 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 get covered up by new facts, he, he may come back in the future, but I doubt he'll want to. I mean, let's face it, it's altogether so much effort, isn't it? But even putting aside a, a, a comeback, what about a sort of kamikaze strategy? So even if he doesn't expect to come back as a sort of future leader of the opposition or anything like that, if the goal is to cause maximum pain for Rishi Sunak, who he sort of sees as instrumental in his own downfall, could he still cause a lot of trouble for Sunak's government in the next year or so before the general election? I don't think uh, th- that he can. I mean, Katie is always absolutely on the money. and um, But my sense is that uh, the revulsion in number 10 towards him is of a degree that I've never seen uh, not even in the worst days of uh, Blair and Brown, uh, and then in Brown's number 10. I mean, the utter, utter contempt uh, for him is so great. Sense of the approaching general election, focusing people's minds, uh, the uh, unity of, the comparative unity of cabinet and, and the government means I don't think that uh, he can inflict much damage on this government. And is he really is he really so narcissistic that he would drag down the party he's never claimed to love for the sake of his own uh, anger and vengeance? I mean, I'm not certain he's that nasty or even that stupid. You mentioned in your piece that many in government see the departure of Boris Johnson as, as a welcome loss of dead weight, as you put it. Do you, do you get the impression there's a sort of sense of relief today that things are finally coming to a close on the Boris Johnson story. Yeah, I think relief could be a strong word on the day of the Privileges Report coming out, just in the sense it reopens the Boris Johnson circus again. But I think there is a hope and some relief at the idea that the Boris Johnson circus is leaving Parliament. It's going to be hard for Boris Johnson to dominate the agenda in the way he has previously. And having him out of the Commons, uh, you can argue, is a net plus for Rishi Sunak in the sense, what has happened with these three by-elections? OK, the Tories may well lose all three. But in terms of the Parliamentary Party, is it going to get more hostile to Rishi Sunak or less? I mean, three of Rishi Sunak's biggest critics are no longer in the par- Parliamentary Party. So that, in a way is something which should cause Rishi Sunak fewer problems in the future. I think the problem you have is two things can be true at once. It is true that Boris Johnson is a reduced force, at least for now, and would fail to mount a comeback. I think it's part of the reason he's decided not to go for that by-election. He doesn't want to test how popular he is. It's part of the reason he didn't uh, go for the leadership uh, last time around against Rishi Sunak. He didn't want to see how it would go because there was a chance more MPs would back. He, He stepped back from it. But at the same time, you can still have a reduced force who can cause problems to their successor. And I think that when we're talking about those by-elections, I'm just struck that there is a real sense the bad local elections were priced in. So I said, oh, we know they're going to be awful, the local elections in May. And But what they did do, despite the fact everything would be bad, it just busted that recovery narrative for Rishi Sunak. And I think this leaving gift from Boris Johnson of free by-elections could be a gift to Rishi Sunak if you have a situation where even they hold one it would be seen as a triumph but if you have free by-election losses it stops being about Boris Johnson the seeds of discontent become all those MPs with 15,000 majorities who start to panic Um, and the problem is not so much the cabinet which is pretty united it's just 
do MPs become so resigned to defeat they all just stop having that discipline and focus because it does not feel like 2015 in the run-up where you had that message discipline the parliamentary party is quite spread out already and I think that's what's tricky for Rishi Sunak he has an opportunity with Boris Johnson outside of parliament to show that he's taking control of his own party he stood up to Boris Johnson a bit this week when he said he asked me to do things I didn't want to do and that was quite well received with some of his MPs saying for the first time he's standing up for himself but he needs it to fall in that way as opposed to uh, you know a situation of growing decay and Rishi Sunak not looking as though he is you know, filling the moment in the way that he could. Anthony you, you wrote a column recently in which you you said that the damage done by Boris Johnson in his time as prime minister was quotes beyond measure. I wonder if you could explain to our listeners how you came to that conclusion. No prime minister in history has so demeaned and degraded uh, the office. And this is where I'm going to disagree with with Katie a a bit with some trepidation. Uh, But, you know, Boris Johnson, he's not credible. You know, Thatcher haunted, uh, Major haunted uh, Cameron and haunted Blair and Brown. She was a giant. Uh, She was a giant election winner. Those general election victories, landslides were won because of Thatcher. 2019 uh, general election victory landslide was won almost uh, despite Johnson. And Thatcher had a credible conservative programme and she was a proven uh, leader. Boris Johnson is a proven liar. He didn't advance conservative values. He was utterly incompetent, utterly incompetent, more incompetent than any prime minister since 1916 when the modern office was created. So, yeah, I mean, all these things are without precedent. Sure, Anthony Eden was uh, in trouble for not telling the truth over collusion with Israel during the Suez crisis, and uh, Lloyd George was in repetitive trouble, but uh, neither of them denigrated the institutions of democracy in the way Boris Johnson has done. So I, I just cannot see that he's a credible figure at the moment, but I can't rule him out also... Uh, in the future because of his extraordinary power of uh, of reinvention, but nothing this side of the general election. On the other hand, to all that, I think it shows that how strong uh, the system of government we have is, that uh, we've had three years of stasis and stalemate under Theresa May and three years of anarchy uh, during COVID and, uh, and all the the, the, the the failure to make progress under Boris Johnson, when all these problems were building up, cost of living, uh, failure of productivity, uh, immigration numbers, uh, uh, and he wasn't addressing them. He was fiddling while uh, the country was uh, going downhill. And yet now we've got two credible figures, who one of whom will win the general election next year. Uh, Keir Starmer is um, a hard worker and he's competent, he's bright, he's intelligent, he's um, uh, honest, uh, and all those qualities apply to Rishi Sunak too. So out of uh, mayhem, there's still, the system has come through. So yeah, I think he has sullied and cheapened the office, and I'm surprised by people who continue to support him, particularly after this most recent accusations by him, uh, that they still think he's a credible figure. 
but that's their view. Um, I think he has caused mistrust. I run a school, as I said earlier. Uh, I don't think he's doing anything to help young people uh, who we need to believe uh, in democracy as everybody, that it is a, a worthwhile profession and we can trust people. I think he, he's caused some damage, but ultimately the system has triumphed nevertheless uh, and that we've come through it stable uh, and with two stably led parties in the Conservatives and Labour. Thank you, Katie and Anthony. Next, in the magazine this week, Paul Wood writes about how Saudi Arabia is buying the world after the Saudi Arabia Public Investment Fund negotiated a controlling interest in the main US golf tournament, the PGA. He joins me now alongside New York Times journalist Justin Sheck. Paul, in your piece, you, of course, mentioned the merger between PGA and LIV, but also the Saudi Public Investment Fund acquisition of Newcastle United Football Club. Why are the Saudis putting so much money into sport? Sport's just one aspect of a big Saudi campaign that they've been doing for years, which is to buy soft power, um, to get away from oil, certainly, but to strengthen their position in the world with checkbook diplomacy. It's as simple as that. MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, the man who rules Saudi Arabia, has been uh, something close to a pariah for the past few years. But people go and watch golf, which the Saudis now own, and I guess he thinks that they will forget about things like that while they're enjoying the game of golf. That's the calculation behind it, I believe, a financial decision, but mainly a political decision. And, and Paul, how successful do you think, if it's essentially a laundering of reputation, you know, how successful is MBS's attempts to kind of creep back into the favour of the international community since the murder of Khashoggi? Well, things like the Russian invasion of Ukraine have helped because the world or the Western world needs more oil to be produced and the price to remain low or to be lowered. So um, President Joe Biden had to sit next to MBS last year at a meeting and fist bump him after having um, called for the man to be ostracised. So I think things are going pretty well for MBS. He certainly seems quite confident. If press reports are to be believed, for instance, he was demanding that the Americans extend a NATO-like security guarantee to Saudi Arabia. That is, if an attack, if Saudi Arabia were to be attacked by, say, Iran, it would be treated as an attack on the United States. And if we, again, believe leaks in the Washington Post um, from uh, security and intelligence documents that have proved reliable in the past, MBS um, coupled that demand with a threat to inflict economic pain on the US. So I think he's looking pretty confident now. Uh, and the purchase of Live Golf is just one aspect of that. They've got a lot of money. They're splashing it around. They're doing what they're all, they've always done, but they're doing it bigger and um, uh, in a more confident way. And it does seem to be working for them. And uh, Justin, I wonder what your take on this is. You've, you've written a lot about Saudi Arabia, including, of course, your, your book, Blood and Oil. Why do you think the Saudis have started to make such aggressive moves in checkbook diplomacy, as Paul puts it? Is it to get away from oil? What's, what's your take on it? Yeah, well, I think, I, I think you know, this, we read about this notion of sports washing, and I think that's you know, sort of a facile explanation for, what, for what's, you know, a little bit of a... a more nuanced thing. I mean, the notion that buying a sports team will make you look good is something that people only uh, apply to Saudi Arabia. I don't think like Mike Ashley came out looking any better for owning Newcastle United. I don't think that anyone is like, oh yeah, Roman, Roman Abramovich is like super great because he bought Chelsea. The whole time he owned Chelsea, people called him a Russian oligarch with ties to Putin. So sports washing is like not a thing. It's never been a thing. 
it's something that people see Saudi Arabia do, do and they're like, oh yeah, it's a sports washing. So it's, that's a made up idea. What they're doing is more interesting than that, which is deeply tied in with Saudi Arabia's recent history and Mohammed bin Salman's attempts to transform the country uh, in relation to oil, but ultimately everything he does is in relation to making sure that he and his family stay in power. And, you know, in a monarchy, the number one priority of the monarch and the monarch's family is maintaining the monarchy. What Mohammed bin Salman was the first to understand at a practical level in, in the Saudi leadership was that for decades, the conservative religious establishment gave the Saudi royal family its legitimacy in the eyes of the Saudi people. People like people were very religious, they were conservative. The clerics said, trust the royal family, and so people did. What he realized is that now with a population that is predominantly under 30 years old, with the world's highest level of smartphone penetration, with everyone on Instagram all day, they just see that everyone else who's their age in the rest of the wealthy world can do, can go on a date with a member of the opposite sex, can go to see live music, can go bowling with a, with a group of, of people of their age. And you couldn't do that in Saudi Arabia. And so he realized that to prevent popular revolt and to maintain legitimacy in the eyes of the Saudi people, he was gonna to need to transform the country into a place that was less inward looking, had more opportunity in terms of business and social lives for its younger people, and wasn't its own place that tried to do things its own way, disconnected from the rest of the world. It had to kind of feel as if it was connected to the rest of the world. He's couched a lot of this in terms of moving away from oil. But the notion that you could replace the revenue from the world's biggest supply of fossil fuels with getting into professional sports and asking companies to put their headquarters in your country of 30 million people is, you know, completely uh, illogical. Like they, this is not just about replacing oil. This is about turning Saudi Arabia into a place that the world thinks of, the world sees. When I go to watch golf, I see I see the Saudi logo. My favorite football team is like super good because Saudi Arabia owns it. So it's it's not just it's not as simple as sports washing. It's 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 transforming the image of the country in the eyes of its own people in the eyes of the world. So it's seen as a place that that is of of the of popular culture of the Western world. So are you are you saying, Justin, that the uh, the extent to which MBS values international opinion is that overstated is it actually more about the domestic opinion that he's worried about rather than yeah, yeah. The, I mean, the domestic of... opinion is is the main thing international opinion is a little less important because number one he has so much oil and so much money and so he has a cudgel but number two you know he's someone who's able to learn from his mistakes and his successes and what he learned from what was supposed to be a two-week bombing campaign in Yemen, which has been seven years of, you know, blowing up children and whatnot, what he's learned from that and what he's learned from the Khashoggi situation is that you can make some mistakes that seem really bad and really deadly and the world will, will be aghast, but only for a little while. That with the amount of money and power he has with oil, he can basically do whatever he wants. I think that's the lesson that, that he's learned internationally. And this is not a criticism. I mean, this is the lesson that any smart person would learn from, from what has happened with him. So I think that the idea that he is like really desperate to improve global opinion is therefore trying to get into soccer and golf is, is a little bit of an oversimplification. Uh, I mean, as Paul said, Joe Biden has had to basically, you know, 
make nice to him, not because of his improved reputation from buying a football team, but because of the oil and, and the money that's at stake. Well, Paul, one, one part of your, your piece uh, that you get into in the sort of second half of it is beyond the world of sport, perhaps even uh, more worrying from a sort of Western perspective, is the degree to which Western political figures are tempted by Saudi money. I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about yeah, that. This may be more strategic. I mean, let, let's not forget it's a feudal system and an absolute monarchy. So personal whims presumably play a big part in this. And maybe MBS just fancied acquiring a golf tournament or, or perhaps the head of the PIF is known as a, as a big golfer. He managed to persuade MBS. There may be a lot of that going on. But it does seem um, quite strategic of the Saudis what they're doing you know, it's 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 not unusual for a general or an admiral to find himself a nice little consultancy in or for Saudi Arabia once he leaves the Pentagon. Uh, the same with a lot of elected officials. Um, so so this is very very powerful. And um, in, in in one way, MBS can do what he wants, but in another, I, I find it quite breathtakingly rash of him to be so disrespectful of the United States. The United States is the ultimate security guarantor for Saudi Arabia. They got into a serious war with Iran. I mean, they have all this high-tech kit. They're one of the world's biggest spenders on advanced military systems, but nobody knows how good the Saudi military forces would really be. They certainly weren't very good in the first Iraq war. Uh, they need the Americans. And um, again, it maybe comes down to MBS's personal politics. He's, he's the guy that matters. And if he is a thug, if he does have blood on his hands, he might be the thug that was needed to face down the religious establishment in Saudi Arabia. It's a paradox that while he's, he's clamped down politically and just a few months ago, some poor, poor woman got 34 years just for tweeting in favor of peaceful political reform. But it, if he's doing all of those things, he's also um, pushed through tremendous reforms. Uh, men and women can go out together, as Justin was saying, and go to a pop concert. Uh, the economy is functioning slightly more normally. A friend of mine was recently in Saudi Arabia and was quite astonished that all the Saudis that he'd asked to come to this training meeting actually turned up. I've been in Saudi Arabia for weeks at a time and people just simply didn't turn up. I think there's a real new spirit in Saudi Arabia. It's not a spirit of political reform, but it is a spirit of social reform. Hmm. Justin, what do you make of that? It, it sort of seems, as, as Paul says, it's almost a sort of paradox, at least from a Western perspective, that in order to remain a kind of unchallenged uh, autocracy... The, there's a certain degree of liberalization that needs to happen. Well, the liberalization, I mean, I, yes, I, I agree with everything Paul said, but to be clear, the liberalization is, is only at the most superficial level. It, it's, it's a superficial veneer. The, the Saudi system is, an, is one of absolute monarchy, where basically there's one guy who, who essentially owns the whole country and does whatever he wants, and what he says goes. That's the Saudi system. And so if the guy who is in charge really doesn't want women to drive and only like super conservative religious policies, then that's what the country will be. And if the guy does want women to drive and really thinks that like live music is great, then you'll have what you have today. But the next guy can do whatever he wants. And that's sort of, that, that's the most important thing here is that it's a place where people have zero ability to determine how they're ruled. And the essence of the Saudi system isn't that it's a conservative religious country. The essence of the Saudi system is that whoever happens to be in charge at a given time can do whatever he wants, however he wants to do it. And that's the system he's, he's trying to preserve. And look, from what I can tell, he's sincere about wanting to reform Saudi Arabia and transform it and create a new country. But 
to transform a nation, it requires institutions and it requires institutions that can transcend one government, one political leader that, that are, can transcend generations and exist over time. And an absolute monarchy is antithetical to having strong institutions. Saudi Arabia does not and cannot have strong institutions because everything is, is ruled by one guy and a strong institution is a threat to the one guy, whoever he may be. The, it, it's, it's very hard for, for MBS to do what he says and what I think he really does want to do, which is to set Saudi Arabia on a different trajectory for generations to come, because assuming he does become king, what happens with, if the next king is, is someone who, you know, wants to go do something totally different? Instead of building skyscrapers, he wants to build deep buildings or something, then it's a whole other place. So, I, you know, the transformation is only, only as uh, strong and as long as, as the king is. Thank you, Paul and Justin. And finally, in the book section of the magazine this week, Simon Heffer reviews Tim Burroughs' new book on the invention of Essex. They both join us now. Tim, can you take us through your relationship with the county of Essex and why you wanted to write this book? I live in South Ends. I grew up here. But I started writing this book when I was living in London and I kind of realised that Essex was known far beyond the borders of the county. So I have a very personal relationship with it, but I also, with this book, started to look at it as a journalist in London, really. And I was so I was effectively investigating my home turf. So what are so, people's assumptions about Essex? That it's brash, vulgar, everyone is permanently tanned, <laughs> which is actually also true of the old Essex villager as much as it is the new Howie star. And that people like driving cars, customising cars, and appearing on reality television. <laughs> and Simon, when it comes to Essex, you mentioned in the start of your review of Tim's book, that there may be some responsibility for much of the county's notoriety, I suppose, after your 1990 article on the Essex man. For listeners who perhaps aren't aware, what is the Essex man in summary? Well, I wrote about somebody who I used to see on the train commuting to London in those days. And he was somebody who worked in the city. He probably would have had a job in the city before Big Bang because it was a conspiracy of former guards, officers, ex-public school boys and Oxbridge graduates. And he was none of those. But he had tremendous mercantile and commercial gifts. And so he was snapped up after Big Bang by financial institutions because he was very good at buying and selling and making markets. And he was somebody who had a tremendous sense of ambition. He didn't believe in the welfare state. He wanted to look after himself and his family. And he enjoyed himself. He particularly liked drinking. And as Tim says, driving fast cars or making cars fast and then driving them. But he was a denizen of the East End diaspora. I live in North Essex and it's rather different up here. I hope Tim's going to write a book on North Essex before too long. But in South Essex, where a lot of people's parents or grandparents moved out from the East End after the Blitz and they were rehoused, not least in places like Basildon Newtown or Hollow Newtown, they were a slightly different breed from the people who as it were, descended from farmers and farm labourers and country people who lived up here. So Essex Man was not representative of the entire county, but of the most popular, populous and populated bit of the county. And that was 33 years ago you wrote that article. Does 
Essex Man still exist, or has he changed substantially since then? He's got smaller mobile telephones now. The mobile telephone. <laughs> uh, the, the man I saw, who was the prototype, who was sitting on a train when I was going up to London one day, had a mobile telephone the size of Yorkshire. And it <laughs> seemed to fill his entire briefcase. I don't think they have changed very much. I think there's still that ambition. And I mean, look. In the 33 years since I wrote it, Essex has become an exceptionally affluent county. I would say it was a moderately affluent county in the 1980s. But you drive around Essex now and there are new housing estates with houses that start at about half a million pounds going up everywhere. And, you know, people who had maybe two cars in 1990 have three or four cars now. They're all quite big ones. So all I can say is his ambition and his hard work and his determination to provide for himself and his family, have succeeded, which is a great thing. Tim, first of all, would you think of yourself as an Essex man? And secondly, what about Essex women? Because I suppose lots of listeners might be aware of Towie, the only way is Essex, and obviously women on that show are very well known. So what about Essex women? Is she just as prominent nowadays? Well, firstly, I'd probably consider myself an Essex man with a lowercase m, but I don't think I've ever fitted in to... Simon's ingenious caricature (laughs) but it's funny I mean I suppose I mean Simon isn't a great fan of Essex Girl as much as I'm not really but it is the stereotype that really took off among the populace perhaps in a bigger way than Essex Man. Essex Man was an incredibly well kind of used and well-loved tool for politicians and and journalists, but I think Essex Girl, because of the joke book and because of the jokes in the 80s, kind of, it sort of took on a life of its own. And there have been recent campaigns against it, which were quite interesting. I think Essex Girl was taken out of at least one dictionary in the last five years. But again, I think it's, perhaps it's too easy to be for or against these things. I do think Essex Man and Essex Girl represented something that was happening in England at large at the time, the 80s and 90s. And perhaps Essex just wasn't as afraid of admitting it as, you know, I think the rise of banter and the rise of consumer lifestyles are, you know, are a a Western world thing. They're, They're not just an Essex thing, but Essex seems to have kind of picked up the tab somewhat. Simon, you write in your review that Tim's book told you a lot more about a part of the county that you didn't know too much about, even though you've lived in Essex for most of your life. I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about that. Well, we never sort of ventured south of the River Crouch, except for once a year when I went to South Church Park by where Tim lives to watch Essex play cricket or to Westcliff to watch Essex play cricket. And as a child, I was taken to South End to keep me quiet. And it, it was always a great uh, adventure to go down there and go to Peter Pan's playground. But I'd hardly, other than to watch cricket, I'd hardly been to South Essex. Well, I've I've hardly been there for 50 years. So I don't know it very well. And it did tell me a great deal about it. I grew up in a village, which is now a new town. I grew up in a village called Woodham Ferrers. And when it turned into a new town, my mother moved. because She didn't like the look of it very much. But as it was growing, as, as the village was growing in the 1960s, we had quite big housing estates built in the village itself. Luckily, we lived out of the village, so we weren't affected by the development. But I found myself at school with people who spoke fluent Cockney. I didn't speak fluent Cockney. I think I sounded probably a bit like I do now, uh, only with a squeaky voice. And it was all rather odd. So I didn't really grow up with those people after I left primary school at the age of 11 and didn't know much about them. And 
Tim's book is the most fantastically vivid, well-written and highly descriptive, highly nuanced, very sensitive view of these people. And anybody who is interested in the Essex phenomenon has got to read it because I've never read a better account of what the people who live in the south of my county and are predominantly from that diaspora or in that diaspora from the East End are like. And he's done an absolutely brilliant job. By the way, can I just say he's not an Essex fan in my stereotype. He's not remotely vulgar enough and he's far too well read and too literate. (laughs) Maybe you need to update your stereotypes there, Simon. Yes. (laughs) Tim, I was going to ask you about London's relationship with Essex. You've obviously Mm. lived in both places. Um, What's that relationship been like over the years, historically, and and how are Londoners seen nowadays by people from Essex? It's really interesting. I mean, I see the industrialisation of London as the starting pistol of what we're talking about as Essex, in inverted commas particularly the industrialisation over the old Essex border of the River Lee. You have thousands of people are coming into East London and making their lives there, but it's not a great existence, so they need somewhere to move to, and that place becomes Essex. And so this is why when I used to go to South and United every week, the opposition fans would sing, you all support West Ham. And because there is this huge trace of East London in South Essex, in South, my neighbour is a West Ham fan. It is true that people do think a lot of the lineage from, you know, those East London borderlands. But conversely, a lot of people won't go back. Partly because, you know, London is a city of complete tumult. It's always changing. And so the East End that their grandparents knew the street is probably likely either not to be there anymore because of the blitz or you know completely changed in character and so I don't know if Essex is kind of suspicious of London but when I moved back to London well not back to London but when I moved to London as a young journalist in my early 20s I did get the question from family members like why would you do that you know historically we're meant to have left (laughs) that place but I've always thought I mean I call South End East 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 London I mean it does feel like that to me personally great well Simon and Tim thank you very much indeed for joining us thank you and that's everything this week as ever if you've enjoyed the podcast do pick up a copy of the magazine where you can read everything we've talked about and plenty more I'm Lara Prendergast and I'm William Moore and we hope you'll join us again next week.